Hi, and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where you tuned in to hear about crazy history, but we may side chat about our Star Wars creeds of choice and how we would choose our own religions based on weapons, based on the absence of peace and the passions in which we enjoy. I'm Teresa. This is the way. And I'm Angie. Oh, and, uh, yeah. what What is the heavens? It's just my hair. I had to put my bangs back so I could actually see you. And it's still like flopping around everywhere. <laughs> Don't you worry about me. I'm just over here trying back. to get together. That, that defeats the purpose of bangs. Okay, well, it was a mistake. You know, you ever make the I want bangs mistake? And think you wanted them until you actually had to deal with them, and then remembered you don't like things on your face. Mm. I'm so they're growing out. They're almost to the point where we can do stuff with them now. So I'm I'm not complaining. I'm just trying to um, sort them out because I don't like looking through my own hair to see you. That's that's fair. I can I can respect. Thank you. That. Thank you so much. <laughs> How was your week? It's it's been good. It's been it's been busy. It's been, you know, but good. Like today is one of those days where I realized before we sat down to hit record that I pretty much have done it all. I've worked. I've gone to the gym. Um, There is hair dye in my hair to retouch up the color. And when we're done podcasting, I'll rinse it out. Um, And it's one of those like, hot damn, I somehow have jammed all of this into the same day. Nice. And the house chores are done. Did I mention the chores are done? Okay, show off. Right? Like, oh. <laughs> and there's like, th- like I've got my chore list broken down. Not so like hyper focused, hyper fixated. I will do all the chores in a given year kind of period. I have pillows in the washer and dryer because part of this chores yes. are like, getting the linens all taken care of and i'm like hot damn look at me go look at you you're being all motivated and not the laundry pile i mean (laughs) it's almost as if my adhd meds are kicking in it's like we're having a good week i know so if you're happy and you know it shake your meds (laughs) i was gonna say if you're happy you know keep taking your meds but that works too I mean, you know, look, my maraca, you know, motivation, whatever. Live your life. No one, no one else is going to tell you how to do it, right? I mean, well, people are going to try, yeah, but you don't have to listen to them. That's very true. So how have you been? Um, You know, we've been, we've got two boys in basketball uh, at the same time. So most of my days are spent recently driving in circles around the county. I'm not kidding when I say that. 430 every night. All aboard for the 4.30 Angie shuttle. Please Mm -hmm. remember to keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times. Ride operators will not be responsible for any lost items. And ride operator picks the music most of the time, too. So I like that for you. So at least you have that going. Thank you. Yeah, and my kids both have really good taste in music, too. So, like, even if they are, like, screaming for something from the back seat, they're usually right. So, it checks out across the board. As long as it's not, Mom, we need to hear it's raining tacos again. 
No, but there for a few years, we listened to a lot of party rock anthem. Mm. A lot. That was the weest. That was his jam for until Old Town Road came out. And then we listened to that a lot. I I'm not proud. But I here think we are. Our, our kids shared the, that musical era. They sure did. Yeah. But we've moved past that and he's gotten into some 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 stuff I really like. So I'm here for it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do I know every song lyric to Party Rock Anthem? Yes. Am I proud? You know. I don't expect this from you. Pride is not something <laughs> you and I get to claim in our lives. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> Here we are just surviving, you know? <laughs> I mean, the only time I hear, you know, anything referencing, you know, my pride, it, it comes in the phrase of, I hope you're proud of yourself. You know, that's never said yeah. when you're sober. Or very sarcastically, oh, you should be proud. Oh, I bet that's a Christmas <laughs> card. <laughs> I bet it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with my family, it's it's definitely hitting the Christmas letter. I'm here for it. I'm yeah. here for it. And living up to my uh, elders' expectations. But I will just uh, my go on My ancestors, the, the... for sure. Yeah, I will just go on the assumption that I am a credit to my line, and I will also tell you that the boy po came in the kitchen the other night while I was making dinner and said, I don't even remember why, like, what he saw or smelled or what he was looking at, but he looked at me and he said, oh, that's why the ancestors are mad. You haven't put enough garlic in this meal. And I laughed so hard. I don't know if I would laugh or slap him with the spatula. You know, okay, so here's the thing. When he was born, I promised myself I would never kick my children out of the kitchen because I wanted them to be a part of cooking. And I wanted them to be a part of that life. And um, he has been kicked out of the kitchen more times than I care to count. Mm. <laughs> so I laughed at what he said. He added more garlic to the dish. And then I wrote it down on the board of quotes that are said in my kitchen. Okay. Yeah. That's up there with... When my kiddo was three-ish, having a tantrum on the streets of downtown Portland, I stood over her writhing, screaming body and just said to her in the presence of my husband, you're making it very difficult for me to be the mother I always knew I would be. Mm -hmm. And I've said similar things. Yeah. Hubs like turned his back. And like laughed so hard that he had to brace himself against the building. And mm -hmm. like kid just didn't realize what I had said, didn't care. She was beyond it. She she needed what she needed. And that was a cheese stick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a nap and a hug, you know. Mm-hmm. And also I'm mad at you. Yeah. All of the things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I uh, told Ethan once that he was he was acting a fool in the grocery store. And I said, son, if you don't stop right now, I'm going to turn into the mothers I always judge. <laughs> and he knew exactly what I meant. <laughs> and he proceeded to behave himself after that. I think he was rewarded at the end of the trip with a meat stick. <laughs> well done. Mm. You know, I... 
I know I'm itching to tell you my story. I'm itching to hear your story. And I don't know who went first or last, last one. Neither I think you went, I. I think you went first last time. Last time was when you talked about the pyramids, right? I think so, yeah. Then yes, I went first last time. Okay. So I think it's my turn to go first then. I mean, that's typically what that means unless you want to fight about it. <laughs> no, not with you. I'll fight someone else. Okay. At another time. All right. I'd fight a bear for you. Like a gummy bear. Oh. I was going to put money on the bear. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I, I mean, I'm taking I that red gummy bear out. <laughs> hmm. Okay. So I got a story for you. All right. Let me start with my sources. Actually, let me start with who this story was suggested by someone I work with. They always wear Ralph Lauren. And when I made a comment noting that, you know, this guy seems to be sponsored by by Ralph, um, he told me this story and sent me on a wild rabbit chase. I am thrilled. Okay. So my sources, a documentary on YouTube by Complex, Horsepower, Hip Hop's Impact on Polo Ralph Lauren, an interview on YouTube by Gwynnon Films, Original Low Life Talk, Polo, and more DJ Self, Ralph Lauren bio on Ralph Lauren's website, TheFader.com, The Real and Raucous Story of the Low Life Crew by Kimmet High, uh, Fashion Style Detroit, Another Lesson in Black History, Who Was the First Black Male Model to Sign an Exclusive Contract with Ralph Lauren, and an article on Complex, Lowen Theory, The Secret Life of the Low, Low Life Crew by Angel Diaz. I'm so excited. You are not going to see these these twists and turns. They are they were fascinating to me. And it it, it took me a minute to figure out how I would tell the story. Um October 14th, 1939, Ralph Lipschitz is born in the Bronx, New York to Jewish immigrants. Pretty much on the eve of World War II, Ralph Lauren's family moved to the Bronx. And according to the bio on Lauren on aviator.com, the family, the father of the family decided to change a surname so he doesn't stand out among the locals. And so the Lipschitz become the Lawrence. Now, unlike other well-known founders of fashion brands like Londo Simonetti, young Ralph doesn't feel any attraction to art. He even chooses to go into a technical education in, in economics, and he studies it at a Barack college. Now, he ends up not graduating from college because right mm -hmm. as things are, you know, right as he's gearing up to end his education, the Vietnam War begins and all young people, 18 to 28, get sent to go serve. And so he gets drafted into the army. Now, um, the hope is that about the time that, you know, he goes in, that they're going to demobilize, right? They're hoping that the the conflict winds down. Um, he ends up really lucking out because by the time he finishes his training, North and South Vietnam declare a truce. And so he ends up getting out of the military and he ends up marrying this girl named Rick Loby. Yes, less than a year later, they get married and Ralph Lauren 
changes his jobs and he gets a job at the Brooks Brothers store as a sales assistant. And it's about that time that he figures out he's got an eye for design. This was unknown to him, right? Like he is a sales assistant. And he starts... That does math. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So he starts putting together outfits for women on the side as kind of a side hustle. And it's about this time that he becomes obsessed with the classic American dream. And so he wants to make money however he can. And so, of course, he starts taking advantage of this talent of putting together outfits for women. And he doesn't stop there. He ends up creating a silk tie for Rivets & Co. and gets it into production. So fast forward a little bit. 1967, Ralph takes out a loan for $50,000. This is about $1 million in today's money. And he uses it to to found his own brand, which he names Polo Fashion. This brand is entirely dedicated for clothing for people who play polo. Now, he, he names the brand Polo because it's a game rich people play. And indeed, he is coming up an impoverished person. So he is faking it until he makes it. Get it. Now we're going to. I'm already picturing the house in the Hamptons. Right. Yeah. So he's he's doing that. He's figuring it out. And fast forward nine years later, Ralph Lauren launches his signature scent polo for men. Smell it. I know you can. I know you understand (laughs) what that smells like. Um. 1986, he opens his flagship store on Madison Avenue. So we're really seeing his brand take off. We're watching the trajectory. The same year that Polo for Men launched, 10-year-old Jackson Blount moved to Marcus Garvey Village in Brownsville. And I didn't know what any of those words meant. That is a residential neighborhood in New York City. Okay. Okay. Uh, He describes this being introduced to this culture because he's in Brooklyn, right? He's dressing fly, hip-hop music, and boosting. Now, if you're uncool like me, I had to look it up. Boosting meant stealing. Yeah, sure does. (laughs) I didn't know, right? Like, I'm not cool. I, you know, my kids aren't, you're, you're, you know, your oldest is a little bit older than mine. So, you know, you get more in that vernacular. Um, It's about this time that Jackson describes seeing his dad dress him up for Easter. And he does, he says that his dad used to dress fly in trench coats, leather coats, fly hats. For me personally, that was the first time I felt fashion and what it stood for as far as taking pride in the way you look. Mm-hmm. And it's very, like all of this was really fun to kind of see all of the personality and how things are taking shape. So Jackson ends up living into in two different neighborhoods in Brooklyn, both Crown Heights and Brownsville. I can't figure out why he spent he spent time between these two neighborhoods because it doesn't seem like his parents split. So it could be okay. spending time at a relative's. I'm unsure. Um, now to kind of shift focus a little bit, there's another member of the group that I'm going to use to kind of help us flesh out a lot of the life and times of this group of friends. The other member I'm going to mention is Thurston Howell III. In an interview, he says, I mean, look, 
I don't make the names. The <laughs> names make themselves. I'm just going to trip and fall trying to say them out loud. So in an interview, Thurston says the ghetto eats its young. Some kids are raised in savage environments, forcing them to stay on the defensive. Anybody could get got, especially in those days. A lot of us were going to prison at an early age. You grow up in prison, meeting the savages from every borough. And once you leave prison, you hang out with the same savages. This checks. Yeah. Like, you know, honestly, I, I kind of guessed it. And then he goes on to say that there's a code of honor within the collective that you could really trust people. Everybody had a lot of respect and honor for each other. Inner city youth tended to move in a unit, whether it be in a gang, a clique, a crew, block, whatever. They come from broken homes and they seek a sense of security. Running with wolves is a safer bet. Most would rather be on the winning side of a stick up. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Me included, you know. And that was just one of those things. It was like, okay, I can see it. I'm getting a picture. And now we're going to zip a tiny bit forward. So it's 1988. Jackson takes his two friends or his two group of friends from Crownsville and or from Crown Heights and Brownsville. I just combined them already. <laughs> And he unites them. Now, these men share a love of one thing, and that's stealing polo clothing. Okay. I'm here for it. Right? Like, this is something I was just like, all right, we have a hobby. Now, they style <laughs> themselves from head to toe in Ralph Lauren gear. Get it. Okay. Now, what they're doing is is honestly remarkably different than anybody else in the neighborhood. The documentary that I watched was saying that basically at this time, Black people tended to dress in fairly standardized choices. Some wore kente cloth or clothing that mirrored the coloring of kente cloth, and others wore clothing with spray-painted cartoon characters. Like, when I was growing up, like, the, the spray-painted Taz and Tweety on the shirts yeah, yeah. with the Bugs Bunny with the baseball cap, like that kind of gear so to be clear just so i understand the kente cloth is like your more um cultural yeah like pattern right okay yes yes okay so just the fact that they're not wearing basically the either of these two binary options they're breaking conventions and when i mean head to toe in polo i mean head to toe the socks the undershirts Mm -hmm. everything okay and they're favoring polos bright and bold pieces they love the clean design the oversized jackets like they're the ones buying like the medium-sized bodies buying the double xls right right okay and you know <laughs> now boosting like, the double xls well you're right <laughs> i stand corrected um and so i i read this and i kind of went okay, I see how this influenced like what I remember from late 80s, early 90s fashion. Like, okay, it's all coming together. Mm -hmm. I'm watching these things coalesce. Now, the Fader article says, this was during New York City's rough and tumble years. The crack epidemic had devastated low-income neighborhoods. Homicide rates hit record highs. Ed Koch's tough-minded 12-year run as mayor is just about up. To be ruthless was the only way to live, especially if you were poor and black. 
for kids like Jackson, boosting the latest designer garments were used as an escape from the daily struggle. It wasn't just a way of grasping for flash, for financial prosperity, for a seemingly unreachable lifestyle. It was a way to cope. It was a way to survive. And this really, to me, in a in a paralleled, uh, we, like Ralph Lauren looking and trying to get the ultimate American dream, trying mm -hmm. to come up from his impoverished lifestyle. It's just that you have these kids coming from a different marginalized community and they're looking to a lifestyle brand as a way mm -hmm. to, to come up. Now, Polo has lines of clothing for different high-end activities. And this was something I didn't necessarily realize, right? They have a different line of clothing for skiing, for hunting, for kayaking. I just thought of it as polo. That's it. Oh, no. One of my favorite dresses is a polo. But did you realize, like, did you go, oh, no, that's from their skiing line. That's from their golfing line. That's from, Oh, like no, not in that way. No, yeah. But I knew that they had multiple genres, for lack of a better word. Fair. Now, Jackson, in an interview, says, as a youngster coming up in the ghetto, my mom never took me camping or on exciting trips. I was pretty much limited to the hood to keep it 100. <laughs> and and I'm like, okay, this 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 checks. Like, I spent a fair amount of time in the woods, but, you know, I think I had a very, very different lifestyle. Um, for these kids, seeing clothing that, you know, pertain to different activities they didn't necessarily have access to inspired them and let them know that there was more to life than being in Brooklyn, than being stuck at what he says in an interview as living at its limited pace. It inspired us to go and pursue these things, to go yachting, to be on Fifth Avenue, to be part of the rich and the elite. <laughs> and that like blew my brain in a way that I didn't realize I hadn't thought about before, that these, these kids in the ghetto using their own language, would stop and go, yeah, I bet I could be on a super yacht. I bet I'd enjoy that. Like, yeah, I remember like being, you know, in a small house with a cornfield behind me thinking about, <laughs> I wonder what they're doing on the yacht right now. Like, Think about I it all the time. Right? Mm -hmm. What are we doing in Monte Carlo today? Mm. <laughs> you Sipping mimosas. And all I think about is Doris Payne stealing. <laughs> that's that's true. What is Doris Payne doing in Monte Carlo today? <laughs> I love Doris Payne. I love Doris Payne. Um, but anyhow, that's not why we're here. We're talking about the Little Life group. Now. Oh, honey, you know Doris Payne would hang out with them in a heartbeat. Maybe. Maybe I, I feel like I feel like they're very di they come from very different worlds, right? Doris Payne. They do come from very different worlds, but they're doing the same thing. They're doing the same thing, but with very different modus operandi. I remember Doris Payne's goal was to act so proper they didn't recognize her skin color. Which I mean, she excelled at. She did. Meanwhile, these guys are literally going in with modified bags stuffed with aluminum foil on the inside and duct tape so that they don't set off the sensor alarms and stealing thousands of dollars of merch in a single snag. That's genius. It is. And it was because of their antics that I was taught how they did the things they did when I had to work retail in college. Mm-hmm. 
Weird, huh? I know. How it so, all comes full circle. <laughs> it's just nuts to see like how everything coalesces. So the group would take pieces when they would go boosting. They would take the pieces they didn't want or the extra sizes that they had, and they'd go sell them on the street. And so suddenly you have entire neighborhoods wearing Ralph Lauren polo. I wouldn't even be mad if I was him. <laughs> Best marketing scheme ever. I mean, it's kind of funny that you would say that because <laughs> as the brand is taking off, Ralph Lauren really does start to take notice. Polo starts auditing their shrink reports to see which pieces are not getting stolen because they realize people don't steal what they don't like. True. And so by auditing which pieces don't get boosted, now they're able to refine the pieces that they need to double down on production. <laughs> and you're just Genius. like, what? Mm -hmm. Now, it's also during this time that Jackson's dad figures out what he's up to, but he seemingly turns a blind eye to it. Okay. So apparently mom was not too thrilled and she had some some thoughts and, and feelings um, but I was just like, okay, so this is, it's all very fascinating hearing the nuance and how things like are happening behind the scenes. Now it's 1993 Tyson Beckford gets picked by Ralph Lauren in an exclusive <clears throat> contract as the front model for the polo companies or for the company's polo sport fragrance and fashion line. Can I just tell you, can I just tell you, he was my first supermodel crush, and I saw him once in real life, and everyone in the room just went silent for me while I looked at him. <laughs> I'm not proud, but there you have it. Now, when he walked in the room, he'd be like, <laughs> everybody's silent. This is my time. This is my time. I'm no, going to gratuitously no. stare at this beautiful man. When he walked into the room, he was, so we were in a theater, and he was... 75 feet away 50 feet away right, right between between i'd say about 50 feet and everybody else was talking to me and i just wasn't listening and then they all realized i wasn't listening because i'm looking at this statuesque greek god <laughs> they all just had, had a moment of silence knowing they're never going to look like that truth much love to you guys mm. love you all <laughs> Anyhow, so yeah. Tyson Beckford, 93. Um, in the documentary, they describe Tyson Beckford as the safe choice for polo. Okay. So it's also during this time that Tommy Hilfiger, he's courting hip-hop artists. There's pictures of the documentary next to TLC, and they're all decked out in Hilfiger gear. And for Ralph Lauren, it would have been easy to imagine him going after, say, Bone Thugs and Harmony. But Tyson is clean cut. He's got the sharp jawline, like mm -hmm. the statuesque Greek god, uh, to borrow your wording. True. Now, 1994, things continue to take a very interesting turn. In the Can It All Be So Simple music video, Wu-Tang Clan's Raekwon wears a Ralph Lauren windbreaker with the word Snow Beach across the front. And he does this because he's inspired by that low-life culture. <laughs> I love this. I knew it was going to be Wu-Tang. <laughs> did you really? I I did. And I also knew that Tyson was going to be the first male model. Well, I mean, 
But and and I didn't know the story at all, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so somewhere around this time, we're gonna go back to Thurston Howe. Uh his ex-girlfriend catches him getting another girl's phone number, and she says that's some low life shit. And a light bulb goes over Thurston's head and he answers, Yeah, you're right. Low, as in like polo, is our life. And the name stuck. So they start referring to themselves as the low life crew. Okay. And okay. they represent themselves with two L's. Of course, using the polo font, that L from the polo font. And for them, mm -hmm. it's love and loyalty. Okay. I like which this. Is very fun. Now, it's also during this time that, you know, it's at its height. They're they're boosting and selling it on the street. The low life crew talks about how they're trading coveted jackets for vehicles. Okay. Like these, like certain pieces of, of merchandise are just that beloved. And I mean, I feel that way about a couple pairs of my shoes. This just it's it's these things that I'm I'm hearing and I'm like, none of this computes, and it's so fascinating because it's so foreign. Now, I know I said 1994 when we talked about Wu-Tang's video, but I'm gonna Go back a couple of years. In 1992, FUBU launches. <laughs> oh, and then, FUBU. <laughs> in, the, in the documentary, the founders appear and they admit they started the brand because they were inspired by the Low Life crew. And so their clothing okay. line mirrors a lot of the same choices that um, Ralph Lauren's making. And it's just like, what this all started because a bunch of guys started stealing one brand okay we have a question where in this scheme of brands does jinko and their jeans <laughs> originate because all i can think of Hot. now is the Hot fubu heads. shoes hotheads <laughs> yep you know I'm thinking like fubu shoes jinko pants right like look <laughs> we, we were all there we all know um, we all probably still have a pair somewhere oh I miss my Jinkos. Anyhow, um, but it was it's really just fascinating to see like how one thing kicks off another and how these chain of events. And it was interestingly, as I was thinking about this, I was trying to think of like how while they stole thousands from uh, Ralph Lauren, they ended up making him millions because yeah, that's why he's not mad <laughs> right like he he ends up like getting in front of like an entire demographic that didn't wear any of his clothing before and now they're they're styling it completely different in the documentary one of the uh, women on there says that ralph lauren was bread it was good bread but it was just bread and what they did is they took it and they made it into a sandwich just because of how they styled it. It looked completely different. And I'll show you pictures in a little bit to kind of double back on that. But before, you know, like, because it's easy to look at these, this group of people and to think of them as just thugs or hoodlums or thieves or whatever. But what's interesting is because they were able to make a business, whether or not it was based legitimately, they were able to kind of, change the trajectory of their lives so for jackson blout the one that i've been kind of using as the forefront of this whole thing 
In 2001, he graduates from the School of Visual Arts, and he has designed professionally since. He does both corporate and freelance work in his design career. Nice. He's designed for Ralph Lauren. Could you imagine? Oh, I bet that was a dream come true. In 2016, he publishes a book. And it's titled Low Life, an American Classic. Okay, I'm here for it. He's done philanthropic efforts. He does public speaking. He feeds the homeless. He does coat drives. And I'm just like, whoa. Like, it just, it's just amazing to see. They went from really looking at this idealized lifestyle to now, like, moving into it, right? Now, it's because of the low-life crew that there is now a resale market for these vintage polo pieces. And some of the most popular pieces that were, you know, really brought to the forefront of the consciousness by this group, they end up getting, like, recreated and re-released by polo. Because they just won't die. Like, they're still, like... We can't kill this. (laughs) Right. Brands like Supreme reach out to vintage polo correctors to recreate pieces very similar for their own brand. Interesting. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Right? Now, the Low Life crew still regularly hosts meetups for its enthusiasts, and this has an incredibly surprising international audience with people coming as far as Germany to these meetups where they have challenges like where they show off the layers of clothing, where you have multiple um, polo shirts and multiple undershirts, <laughs> and you got the layers of socks and you've got the polo shoes. I mean, everything. Like, and if you show up in a pair of Timberlands, but everything else is polo, you're disqualified. You're not head to toe yeah. in polo. You, you, you're not doing it right. Right. And you I missed, love me some Timberlands. Right. Like you missed a step. <laughs> Now, the complex article pretty much says it best with the crew with its mantra of love and loyalty helped individuals remain a unit despite their chaotic environment and kept them focused on upward mobility. Ralph Lauren clothing represented that life. Get it. I hope they're and, all chilling on a yacht somewhere. <laughs> you know, I when I saw them in an interview, like, so this is this is them as kids. Oh my gosh, they're adorable. So I'm sure. I love the ski goggles. I'm sorry, I would love to describe this to you, but I'm just enjoying it. (laughs) It's a picture of a group of boys and at least six of them. Let me see, three. I'm I'm assuming that's another back. So six, eight, eight of them in a single photo, and they all are bedecked in polo gear. They all are completely. different dress like there's not a single one duplicating another piece of clothing of the others and they're all I, they're they're just happy kids and i, I don't love care if they're in 20. the back with the fur lined fur lined coat right <laughs> love it he's got the the big hood with all the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh i love it how fun now i yeah, wanted they're, they're probably late teens yeah late teens yeah but they're just they're just having a good time and they're just they're just being kids. I now, love this. This is also an ad from the same era. 
but this is just to contrast how us whites were wearing it. And it's just a man carrying a kayak over his head with a sweater and a bandana around his the top of his head. Like, I'm going to need to know what he looks like today. <laughs> I think mean, he I looks can... the same. I'm willing to bet at this point his hair is short, mostly gray, likely pot yep. belly. Oof. This, so the sweater he's got on has got like the um the Native American like it, it's got some some Pendleton it, wool vibes. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And in the signature red, white, and blue mm-hmm. coloring. Yep. And then just for you, got <sighs> Thank you. you a picture of <laughs> And you Tyson didn't even Beckford. know. I didn't. Um, but even if you look at Tyson Beckford in his red USAA or USAA, USA hoodie <laughs> and um, polo brown fleece over the top of it, like that is still a very different style than how the lowlife crew that's, was wearing it. That's middle middle class American dad that he's currently wearing. Yep. Yeah, on his way to a soccer yeah. game. Yep, yep. He's One got he's got the white macchiato in his hand over the sweatpants because he just <laughs> had to get the kids in the minivan. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. But that is the story of the low life crew. That story makes me so happy. Get it, fellas. I'm I'm proud of them. And now, the like and all that, they're seemingly well-adjusted and made a better way for themselves. And it's really just exciting to see the story of a come-up. Mm-hmm. That they goes about it that ends in the right way, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it starts, it starts in a... Yeah. It, telling the story was, like, I wrestled with it because it's like, how do you tell the story of somebody doing an activity that you don't agree with but it inspires so much good and positivity and creativity and like. Makes it hard to disagree with at that point. I mean, yeah. They're not wrong. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's like, you know, I disagree with your method, but I love how it turned out. Love the artwork. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Dang. My story is so different than yours. I have no idea how to segue because I'm just stuck in <laughs> Ralph Lauren right now. But wow. okay, so I am delighted. My coworker grew up in Brooklyn. I think Brooklyn, but his family bought pieces of polo from the lowlife crew. He was too young to really do any of it intentionally, but he dresses head to toe in Ralph Lauren. That is awesome. That was how he grew up. That's what you do. And I was just like, gotta stay loyal. What? Like, none of this is on my radar. That's so cool. Makes my makes my brand love uh just blossom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I gotta go hug my Uggs, excuse me. <laughs> Have you hugged a shoe today? <laughs> okay. When the boy was a baby, he went through 
I would say, a three to six month time period where he insisted, and we have no idea why, he insisted that he slept with at least one of Ian's shoes. (laughs) We don't have an answer, but he wouldn't go to sleep without dad's shoe. On your kid's wedding day, give a speech. (laughs) Give the bride a shoe. I plan to. I have some things to share. (laughs) And your dad has worn this shoe faithfully for 30 years so that you would be able to get it now. (laughs) It goes to the it goes to your spouse. Um, Whenever he's acting a fool, can't get to sleep. Check the shoe. (laughs) Put the shoe under his pillow. You know, and the best part about it is, is that was okay. So he's going to be 16 at the end of March. So he was probably two. I'd say 18 months, two years old. Uh, when he did that, and my husband still wears the exact same shoes. We've bought a bazillion pairs of the same shoes since then. Okay. Yeah. This is this is so working it'll, out it'll, it'll be there. Yeah, it'll it'll be there. <laughs> oh man, I'm so delighted! By it. We're having a a story time today that is not going to end in anybody needing therapy. I feel like we need a sticker. <laughs> you, you didn't ha- you didn't require therapy today. Congrats. <laughs> yeah. This podcast didn't trigger you. Winning. <laughs> <laughs> do we get the sticker each time we do it or I'm not going to get the sticker often. <laughs> like I mean I'm going to trigger. I wouldn't get the sticker often because you trigger me. <laughs> I don't know. Listening to the podcast where there was one, what was it, where I'm like, I don't like this. Angie, I don't like this. And oh, um... you kept going. And I was like, I don't like this. Like everything. Yeah, of- that was your comeuppance for making me listen to Tierra. <laughs> it's always him. Always. Which is why you retold Alexander the Great. That was the one. No, no, it wasn't Alexander well, actually, the Great that I said that. I chose to retell Alexander the Great because we had just, like, the week before that story learned new information. Like, we had just um, found so one of his tombs or something like circumstance that. circumstance is what it was. Yes, twice. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, what is your story? Okay. Um, I'm just going to start with my sources. History.com, meet Stagecoach Mary, the daring black pioneer who protected Wild West stagecoaches. (laughs) So do you have any uh, insight into her life? I am this close to buying a shirt with a quote that she says. Oh, okay. What's the quote? One sec. Let me pull it up. Because I want to get it right, because it is such a baller quote. But I, I did, I think I did get her confused with a different person. Oh, okay. I'm either way. I'm delighted to tell you this story. So continue. Um, my other source is the Postal Museum that is um, part of the Smithsonian. It's an article by uh, Shelby Amspatcher. Hopefully, I said that right because. I've never quite seen a name like that. 
the National Park Services. Woot, that's two in a week, two in a row for me. Dang, girl. I know, Simmer right? down now. They're going to need to give you a green shirt. <laughs> cool, cool it. I just want one of their water bottles. That's all. Mm. <laughs> um, no, uh, An article from a website called Notes from the Frontier that is put together by this author called Deborah Hufford. She does a lot of background researches into her works, be them fiction or nonfiction. So this website is kind of dedicated to that to her storytelling. And then 10 fascinating facts about Stagecoach Mary, Motherly Wild West Pioneer, oldwest.org. This article is by Karen Harris. However, in telling my story, it seems unfair to start it any other way than with this great quote from the Smithsonian. Standing six feet tall and powerful, many bandits learned to stay clear of Stagecoach Mary in the American Old West. Stagecoach Mary Fields carried a gun, smoked, drank, and had a wicked temper. Mary was the first African-American woman to carry mail on a star route for the United States Post Office Department. I love her. Um, And that's what sold me. I was like, yep, I need to know more about this woman right now. Now, Baring, she was born between 1832 and 1833 so unfortunately we do um discuss a bit of slavery but not um it's just very brief you know that's that's the unfortunate history right and i think we need to Truly. focus in and like not gloss over it be like look we can change the stars we can really change she the did. systemic racism that puts people in places they ought not to be Yes, and um, I, I genuinely think that her start being this way led to the type of person that she was going to be in her life, and um, she was steadfast and loyal, and I'm I'm here for it. And it makes me th it makes me think that her childhood wasn't the the horrific things that we've heard. You know, I, it makes me almost think that some people actually were genuine and good to her at some point in her young life because her adult life, she is a genuine, magnificent human being. So I think she saw some of that somewhere. And I'm just I'm, I'm not sure where, because unfortunately, because she was born into slavery, we don't have early life information. Right. right? Um, and, and that's aside from the fact that no one should get to. Um, procure another person it's truly unfortunate that we don't have a lot of firsthand accounts of their life because these are amazing people and because history is the way that it is and written the way that it is we don't get to hear a lot of their stories but hers we know a good amount later in life so I'm very excited to share it so she like I said born in 18 between 1832 and 1833 her exact date of birth is unknown, um, along with almost everything else about her early childhood. However, according to History.com, historians have been able to pinpoint her birth as somewhere near or in Hickman County, Tennessee. That's the most likely candidate for her birth. So I thought that was kind of cool because at least we have some idea. We yeah. can kind of place her visually. 
We do know that she worked for the Warner family of West Virginia in the years leading up to the Civil War and that in 1863, when she would have been about 31 years old, she was emancipated. And at this point in her story, um, and I think with most freed people of this era, their lives take a really interesting turn. Some are found in situations they should have never been found in because we didn't think emancipation through the right way and do the work that was necessary to make sure that they had ensured living and quality in life, you know? Right. But that didn't stop her. Um, she traveled around the South working as a laundress or servant to other families. Then she started her working her way up the Mississippi on a steamboat called the Robert E. Lee. And on the steamboat, she's a chambermaid. She was on board the Robert E. Lee during the big road race against the, and I butcher this word every time, Natchez, N-A-T-C-H-E-Z. I have never been able to say it right. In 1870. Now, I, for one, know that this is a really famous ship, um, but again, I can't say the word. I've never been able to. Hopefully, one day, somebody will be like, really, it's easy. Just sound it out. <laughs> Today is those not people, that day. we say... Words that I will bleep out. Like, look, we're we're doing our best, dang it. I'm trying, man. Just don't have the accent for it, I don't think. <laughs> so many years later, she would tell the Cascade Carrier newspaper in Montana that the crew during this race threw everything within reach, including cargo and barrels of ham and bacon, to feed the boilers as the crew sat in relief as valves to burst the steam's pressure. It was so hot in the cabin, she says, that passengers had to take to the desks to the decks. It was expected the boilers would burst. Wow. But she said they held and the Robert E. Lee won. <laughs> so that I think that was a really um triumph moment for her. So like I said, she was working her way up the Mississippi River. Once <laughs> she Reached Toledo, Ohio, she jumped ship and went to work for the Ursuline Convent of the Sacred Heart. Now, this part's a little confusing. We don't have 100% information, but a lot of historians have pieced bits and pieces together, and there are a couple of different um, ideas here. According to the National Park Service's website, Sister Kathleen Patton, the archivist for Toledo's Ursuline Convent, Mary arrived in Toledo by train in 1870. So that's about seven years after her emancipation. Okay. What makes this intriguing is there are a couple of different reasons she could have sought out the convent to begin with. One theory suggests that she accompanied a daughter of the Warner family. So that was kind of interesting. Another idea simply states that she was traveling with a friend of the family who had happened to be a nun and maybe just decided to stay on there. However, according to the author Deborah Hufford of News from the Frontier, Mary eventually found work in the home of Judge Edmund Dunn, whose wife, who, when his wife Josephine died, the judge entrusted Mary to escort all five of his children to live with his sister a mother superior at the Ursuline convent in Toledo, Ohio. So mother all Mary the kids went to the convent. That's one theory. Um, like I said, 
we have three ideas. It could have been any one of them. I think people lean on this one being a little bit more accurate, but the mother superior was Mother Mary Amadeus Dunn, and she immediately took a liking to Mary. So the idea that we know Mother Mary was um, the judge's sister kind of makes me think that this story is a little closer to the truth okay than than either of the other two but unfortunately we just don't know for sure um hufford goes on to say even though mary was hard-edged and foul-mouthed mother amadeus recognized that the big black woman had a heart of gold and could be relied upon no matter what like i said all interesting ideas not 100% sure on exactly how she ends up there. But regardless, she begins working at the convent and she does things like the washing, buying supplies, managing the kitchen, and maintaining the grounds and the gardens. <laughs> Mary was known to lose her temper and was quick to yell at anyone who stepped on the grass she had just cut. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> Me too. And all I can picture is mom mopping the kitchen floor. <laughs> As somebody who just washed the rugs, can I tell you the number of times my husband has looked at me, maintained eye contact as he stepped around a rug so that he didn't put his work boots on it? Exactly. He knows better. You know? He has been told. He has chosen life. <laughs> In fact, one of the nuns at the convent remembers her saying quote god help anyone who walked on the lawn after mary cut it <laughs> <laughs> and that's that hits different coming from a nun doesn't it yeah mary liked cigars and a good stiff drink and was not opposed to a good gunfight so i'm gonna Who go out on us? a limb here i know right i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that between her and the nuns there's probably a little bit of personality clashes <laughs> Maybe. 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 But the other hand of that is there's a very real chance it was kind of endearing and they just dealt with it, you know? Right. At least some of them did for sure. Like, look, at least one of us believes that this can end in violence and we, we kind of need that. We accept it, you know? But I think maybe that's why she went to work for the convent in the first place. Maybe she was looking for a more quiet, serene life. But then on the other hand... Maybe not. <laughs> when you get the quiet screen life that you want, you realize, you know, this isn't quite as cracked up as I thought it would be. There's, there's I'm not, a little bored. Not as many gunfights over a card game as I'm used to. In fact, right? Uh, regardless, though, th her time there didn't last terribly long. Mother Amadeus, whom she worked for in Toledo, was moved to Montana to open a school um, slash mission. And several sources say that Mary comes to her aid and to care for mother, for the mother during um, a pretty intense sickness, probably pneumonia. Um, I already mentioned the fact that it is worth mentioning that Mother Amadeus was the sister of Edmund Dune or Dunn. Other sources yeah. say that, um, however, aside from that fact, it is possible that Mother Amadeus and Mary were friends even before then. It's possible. Other sources say it's possible that their friendship went back long before the war and that Mother Amadeus was friends or even related as well to the Warren family with whom Mary served right before emancipation. Which, I mean, might explain why Mr. Dunn was cool with sending 
his children with her to Mother Amadeus because there was already no, a known relationship. Mm. But but we're not entirely sure. But we do know that Mother Amadeus truly believed in Mary and had deep affection for her. Mary came to her aid and stayed with her. Um, she he she didn't leave Montana, so I there was definitely some friendship there. The National Parks Service says, quote, when Mary arrived in Montana in 1885, there were about 150 people living at the mission, including American Indian and white students, as well as the staff. By cultivating a large garden and hunting game, Mary worked to ensure all the staff and students were fed. She also coordinated the delivery of supplies to the isolated mission. She lived on the property, but refused to be paid for her work. Mary did not document why she refused wages. Perhaps it was out of altruism. Whatever the reason, it gave her a new freedom. She could come and go as she pleased and accept other employment opportunities as well. So I'm here for it. Live your life, Mary. <laughs> On your terms. If like you a, choose to do work for free, do it. G- get your best self, you know? Like I said, she stayed with the mother after she re- re- recovered. Excuse me. And she is remembered as doing mostly men's work, such as repairing the buildings. She was also so good at carpentry that she was promoted to foreman, which I think is just fantastic. This woman is 200 pounds, six feet tall, and leading the men in the carpentry. Get it, mama. I am here for Mm. this. Mary, however, did have a complicated relationship with the leadership at the mission, she didn't really adhere to the gender norms of the time. She would dress in male clothing. Shocker. And I know, right? And took on physically labor- laborious jobs, usually done by the men. So wait a so minute. They year... wanted her to be foreman. They wanted her to, to lead in carpentry, but they wanted her to do it in a dress. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because while she did wear men's clothing, I genuinely think that it was done while working in those types of positions because there are plenty of images of her in a dress. So I think it was just, I don't think she did it for the sake of being nonconformist. You know what I mean? Right. But regardless, uh, a year after her arrival... Rumors spread to the nearby town of Cascade that she had engaged in a duel. (laughs) The local bishop responsible for the mission banned her from from the mission at St. Peter's. Both Mary and the nuns were upset by the news. And records indicate that while the nuns and Mary didn't always agree with each other, they truly did rely on each other. The U.S. Postal Service has this quote to say about this incident. Quote, this was due in part to her crash behavior, unruly temper, and penchant for drinking and smoking in saloons with men. <gasps> How dare her? The final straw appears to involve an argument in which Mary and another mission janitor, a male, got into a fight and were agitated to the point that both drew guns. While neither ever fired the gun, this incident was enough to make the bishop of the area demand for the nuns to relieve her duties. Um. Also, at one point, point she got into a fist fight with a local cowhand. So, <laughs> you know, you think these men would just quit trying her? They she, they probably stepped on her lawn. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. 
<laughs> rude. So at this point, uh, Mary moves to the nearby town of Cascade, Montana, where she would be the only African American until 1914. Ah, uh, wild. To right? be the only, not not a fun place to be. Yeah. Um. At this point, she does a handful of random jobs. She opens up a restaurant of sorts, and she's known for giving things to those that cannot afford it. Um, so at the end, the, the restaurant business didn't really work out for her because you can't stay in business if you're not making a profit. <laughs> uh, excuse me. I lost my place for a moment. She set up a laundry. And then in 1895, I suppose because she was bored, at 63 years old, she decides to apply for a postal carrier position. It said that she got the job because she was the fastest applicant at hitching a team of six horses. She was the first black woman in the nation to manage a mail route. She held the job for more than eight years and never missed a day of work. She was always well-armed with a rifle and a pearl-handled silver Smith & Wesson thirty-eight. She called Lemon Squeezer. <laughs> I love that. She, right? This this part of her story literally had me beaming while I was learning about it. She obtained a contract from the United States Post Office Department to be a star route carrier. And if you're asking like I was, well, gee, what's a star route carrier? Well, it is described as an independent contractor who uses a stagecoach to deliver the mail in the harsh weather of northern Montana. So they special. Her route was 34 miles round trip, and when the snow was too high for even the stagecoach, she would strap on the old snowshoes and make the trek by foot. Oh, no, thank you. 34 miles in the snow. At 63 years old. When you did Bass Reeves, you had another 30-mile trek. Like, (laughs) you are picking... They're great at it, man. The marathoners. Some hardy people. I truly and she does it with snowshoes on. I can't feel like that's comfortable. No. But I've never been snowshoeing, so what do I know? One time, oh, uh, excuse me, when she when she could actually just drive her route in the stagecoach, it was manned by horses and one mule named Moses. <laughs> There's a story that says one winter night a pack of wolves had spooked her team. And in that incident, her wagon had overturned in the snow. She scared off the wolves herself, flipped the wagon back over with her own brute strength, loaded the spilled cargo, and made the delivery. The only casualty was a keg of molasses. And the bishop charged her for the breakage, which really ticks me off. Like, this woman went through everything to get you that keg of molasses. Mind your business. But whatever. She it retired be insured from post. to a certain point, just like any other post now. Yeah, I'm sure back in 1895 that wasn't a thought process, but it should have been. I fully agree with you. And also for a story like it's winter, it's nighttime, you're in Montana. The molasses is what you're worried about. <laughs> Come on now. Like you you didn't hear the part about the wolves? That's what I'm saying. But regardless, she held that post for eight years until she retired. She was the first African-American woman and the second woman to receive receive a star route contract from the United States Post Department. 
Um, I do want to mention real briefly that the first woman star right carrier was a woman named Polly Martin, who drove a mail wagon from roughly 1860 to 1876 from Attleboro to South Attleboro, Massachusetts. So these women, they tough, man. That's all I got to say. According to the Postal Museum, during her time as a star right carrier, Mary became beloved by the locals of Cascade, Montana, for her fearlessness and her generosity, as well as for her kindness to children. Like mm-hmm. I said, she retired at 71, and she started a laundry business in town. She also opened another eatery and was known for babysitting the local children. She remained famous, even becoming the mascot for the town's baseball team. she loved baseball that was like her her heart she loved the baseball and she loved the players for every game she presented the players with buttonhole boutonnieres handmade from the flowers in her garden for their jerseys and then right she would offer full-size bouquets for players who hit home runs and if you don't love this woman by now you should you know that's what i'm saying you know look there it just goes to show that some people are just broken. Truly. If you and don't love her, because you, you need you need to seek a therapist. You need some professional help. You need a hug. Truly, right? Mary, like I said, she was beloved by the people so much so that she drank in the saloons for free and ate for free at the local restaurants and hotels. When the New Cascade Hotel was sold, the owner stipulated in the sale that mary would continue to have free meals of charge free of charge for the rest of her life in 1912 when her home and laundry burned down the townspeople built her a new home (laughs) Mm. and i just i love that in 1907 so a few years back montana passed a law forbidding women to enter saloons but cascade's mayor gave her an official exemption um (laughs) According to OldWest.org, she, quote, just wrote with me on this, but as much as she enjoyed this special privilege, Fields drank only in moderation. There are no accounts of her getting drunk. She simply enjoyed the company. She spent her evenings in the taverns puffing on a cigar and arguing politics. (laughs) She was, however, known for saying she could punch a person out first try. She rarely lost, and no one ever challenged her a second time. (laughs) And I want her to that. Be my I like that. <laughs> right? Even the school would close down to celebrate her birthday each year. In fact, Fields would use her hard-earned money to buy candy and treats for the children, which she gifted out to them on her birthday. Ugh, my heart loves this woman so much. Mary Fields died on December 5th, 1914 at 82 crazy years old. After her death, the townspeople raised money to have her buried in a cemetery on a road she drove frequently that linked Cascade to the mission. Mary's funeral was said to be one of the largest in town. Right? In my opinion, OldWest.org said it best when they described her, quote, saying, Mary Fields rightfully earned her reputation as a hard-working, rough-around-the-edge fighter, she was also delightfully charming, compassionate, and a good friend to the people of Cascade. And I honestly couldn't find a better legacy than to have the love of the people around you, especially in a time and a place like hers. And yeah. to me, it just goes to show what people can accomplish when they stop looking at gender and other stereotypical things. Stop judging. 
Like, she was an amazing, amazing lady. The local Native Americans gave her the name White Crow because she acted like a white woman but had black skin. (laughs) 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 The the locals of the area were also, at, at a time, perplexed by her. One schoolgirl wrote an essay about Mary saying... She drinks whiskey. She squares. She swears. She is a Republican, which makes her a low, foul creature. <laughs> but that didn't stop the whole town from loving her. <laughs> Gary Cooper, like the Gary Cooper, like high noon Gary Cooper, while growing up in Montana, not only had the pleasure of meeting this legend of a woman, one source says she was even his babysitter. He had a couple of admiring things to say about her in an article to Ebony Magazine. Quote, even though she was born a slave, he wrote, she was one of the freest souls to ever draw a breath or a 38. Oh. Mm. He also goes on to say that she could whip any two men in the territory and had a fondness for hard liquor matched only by her capacity to put it away. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right? Um. Yeah, I mean, she's just an absolute legend. And I have a few pictures. Um, Go there, on. Because I'm just, I'm so in love with this woman. It's ridiculous. Uh, here we go. So here's the there first one. So you can get kind story of a story you share that you say that I'm, I'm not, not in love with. Not absolutely. That's true. It's true. Because okay, I have so a lot she's of love showing people... me a picture of a stout black woman. Um, holding six a rifle. feet tall, two hundred pounds. I mean, <laughs> she's she's got um either black or brown. The, the color the picture's in sepia, right? So there's not a lot of yeah. uh, change in 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 color. Um, and she's got a border collar, border collie laying at her feet. Um, mm-hmm. but she's just kind of looking askance. But everything about that says. She is not going to take any lip. I think she's the definition of fuck around and find out. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, this is, I love this picture so much. This is her baseball team. So there she is standing on the far right. Oh. Um, is that not just the cutest? There's two, four, six, eight, probably 12 guys in this photo and her. And she. you can tell the picture is poor quality because of its age but you can tell how happy she is to be there with them and what's Um, exciting is that all of these white dudes are thrilled that you know like they're just thrilled like it's not like they're upset that she's in the photo like she is part of them like she she's part Mm -hmm. of their identity truly like you can tell that there is a lot of enjoyment in this picture and it literally brought a tear to my eye when i saw it last night i had to include it and then this, I think she was just this really stately character. Here she is sitting on, I think that's a till, right? I'm not positive that's what, what it looks of wagon like. this yeah. is. Yeah, I'm going to guess. It does look like um, a farming wagon for sure. For sure, yeah. I also just noticed in the back there's some sort of drawing or portrait back there. Do you see that? I do. I don't know do suppose that is? much about who that is or anything, but probably a white person. Just, I don't know, but... It, yeah, she's it's just in front of an old-timey house on... An old-timey wagon? Yeah. With her clearly bright white cleaned gown because that those skirts are starch white and beautiful. Um, yeah, that's I my last picture. And... Keep that clean, you know, so well done. I, 
Yeah, especially on a top of a farm wagon, I would think it would be even harder, right? Right. So that's my Honestly, delightful story. Thank you. Because of... <laughs> I'd I'd heard about her in another podcast that I subscribe to, but obviously I didn't retain a ton, right? So it was stoked to kind of hear it again. That was another story brought to you by the the uh, the man whom I said uh, Bass Reeves needs a counterpart. And I I need, I would like a lady. There's got to be a great American lady story for me to share. And he was like, give me 10 minutes. <laughs> he, he found this Smithsonian article and it just had me from the get that first line. I needed to know about this woman. And the fact that it ended with her loving baseball so much that she became the team's mascot. It's like, oh, my heart. I just want to sit next to you and hear your story, ma'am. Such a sucker. If you're a sucker, yeah. then I think we all are. I mean, if you're not a sucker for this woman, you're a dirty, rotten liar. So there's that. Or a heartless son of a... And a dirty, rotten liar. <laughs> I mean, you could... There's. You don't have to look. Look, you don't have to like everybody. Right. I mean, obviously, it's true. The the bishop who kicked her out of the convent, he was not a fan. Oh, <laughs> there was a story I didn't include um, because my notes were already really long. But there is a a nearby priest came to visit and he, he said that she completely charmed him when she came in carrying a skunk. And she I guess was recounting the story of this skunk and her battle with the skunk to the, the mother superior or whatever we call her supreme, the head lady, the head boss girl, I think mother superior. Um, yeah. She's not a, she, okay, yeah. she's not a, an upgraded thing at Taco Bell where you just get some sour cream and extra cheese on <laughs> some guacamole. Um, yeah. So she, so she's recounting this story and this priest is overhearing it. And she basically says, um, I got him. He's not going to solve the problem anymore or cause a problem anymore, yada, yada, yada. And they ask her, well, how did you not get sprayed? And her response was simply, I mounted a full frontal assault. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you would. And I that that stayed with the priest like the rest of his life. And he was just so charmed by her that he could not help but love her. So I imagine that he, too, was quite upset when the bishop uh, excused her from her post. <laughs> but that just goes to show, right? There's going to be haters for everybody. Yeah. I mean, I'm, if Stagecoach Mary can't win them all, then who among us? I mean, really, I've never sewed boot or I've never created boutonnieres for an entire baseball team every game. I've never wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I've wanted to make cupcakes for for the boys' sports teams, but I've I've never um... every game, every game. No, never. Yeah, see, and that's your kids. Yeah, so that's my story. <laughs> well, I love it. Um, if you've enjoyed this wild romp through history, where we uncovered some really crazy things, like we went from the early 90s, all the way back to the wild, wild west. I mean, when was the last time you had a quote from a wild west or a western star? I ask you. 
in, it wasn't in fact, right? Or in the I mean, same story. Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're one of us and you're thinking, good grief, I can't wait to hear what they do next time. Rate, review, subscribe. Um, tell the person who cleans your fish tank, because I'm sure you've got a dedicated person about the podcast. Tell them that we'd loved it if they listened, wrote in. And on that note, goodbye. Bye. I almost forgot to say bye. Bye.